Welcome to Expert Gold Radio, which shows you how to leverage your leadership. Here's your host, Gahan Pereira, for this month's show. Welcome to Expert Gold Radio for January 2014, and Happy New Year. I hope you've had a safe, relaxing, and a happy time over the Christmas break, and I hope that you're raring to go this year. Of course, this is the time of year when lots of people are doing their planning and their goal setting, so if you'd like some help in this area, there are two past episodes of this radio show that you might find useful. Just last month, I shared nine things that successful people do differently, and that was based on the book of the same name by Dr. Heidi Grant Halverson. And I loved this. I loved this book because it's based on the latest research in social psychology and what makes successful people tick. The other episode's a little bit older. In January 2012, yep, that's two years ago, I interview Erica Bagshaw about what she calls creating certainty. And that's certainly worth pursuing in such an uncertain and ever-changing world. And that's her goal-setting process. So you learn some really practical tips to set goals that actually you can really achieve. So both of those episodes are available in the radio show archive, which you can get at expertgoldradio.com. So what about this year and this episode? Well, I'm going to start with the conversation that I had with my amazing friend, Neen James. She's an expert in time management and productivity, and she's just written a fabulous book, Folding Time, and she graciously agreed to share some of her secrets with me. And then after that, it's my regular segment with my friend, Chris Pudney, and this time we're talking about some trends for out-of-office workers. Then there also seems to be a lot of interest in creating membership sites. I'll end with a short segment about the seven biggest mistakes that I see people making with planning and building a paid membership site. But let's start with the conversation that I had with Neen. Hello, this is Gihan Pereira. I'm speaking today with Neen James. Neen's a global productivity expert and she's a colleague and a friend of mine as well. She's Australian, but she now lives in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, and she teaches her productivity principles to business owners, executives, organizations, and consumers in Australia, the USA, and pretty much everywhere in between. And I particularly want to talk to Neen today about how to be more productive and effective in our ever-changing world. And it seems like some of the older time management ideas, I mean, some of them are still useful, but some of them have passed their use by date and and we need new strategies to cope and Neen's recently published a brilliant book called Folding Time and I love her practical approach to getting things done. So welcome Neen and thank you for being here. What a privilege to be able to spend some time with you Gihan. I'm loving being able to hang out with you. And isn't it fantastic oh, sitting on the other side of the world it's 6 30 in the morning here it's 5 30 in the evening for you and we can communicate crystal clear. Gotta love that that's productive. Yeah. Look, Nin, you're based now in the USA, and I know you lived mm-hmm. in Australia, and I, we knew each other when you were living in Sydney, and I used to visit there quite frequently. Tell me a little bit more about the story, anything that more that you can share, and how you got to where you are now? Yeah, for sure. I guess the journey for me started 15-odd years ago when I was in leading really large teams in corporate in Australia, and I think I became a little bit obsessed with the idea of productivity. I think that I was researching articles and reading books. You might remember way back when we got to hang out that there was that was certainly a passion of mine. So I think I've always been enamored with this idea of getting more things done. And so when I was in Australia, I was fortunate to be mentored and part of a great community there. And then when I set up my practice in uh, the USA, I decided I'd really focus in on productivity over here as well. So I guess my obsession with helping people get more done and get on with it is really around this idea we can create more significant moments in life that matter. And living here in the U.S. and having lived in Australia, having the opportunity to have maybe an international perspective, I kind of know what it takes to juggle the work, the travel, 
you know, spending time with people you love. So I was very fortunate that my husband and I were relocated as part of his work. And so we were very blessed to sit up in an amazing part of the world. And I live on the east coast of the U.S. For people who don't know where Pennsylvania is, if you're looking at a map, it's the square state <laughs> over mm. on the right-hand side. But what's interesting about here is I'm so beautifully located and have the opportunity to work with some of the leading companies around the world because their head offices are here. So being based on the East Coast, I do a lot of work obviously back and forth, but have some fantastic clients here. I really think that time is the new currency. And so my story that I get to share with people is how they can really leverage that currency even more. Because they don't have time to do everything, Gihan. They only have time to do what matters. Mm -hmm. And so it's helping the people understand what matters to them so they can create more significant moments that matter. You've got that wonderful perspective, Neen, of living in the US, but also having that Australian culture and heritage and tradition and mm. having lived here for a long time in Australia as well. I know there's a lot in common. Maybe we're divided <laughs> by common language, as somebody once said. But do you see any difference in the way that you look at time management, productivity? It seems that we're all still very busy. <laughs> yeah. And... You know, one thing that I've learned is that Australians work hard, but they play hard. Hmm. Americans work hard, that's it. You know, <laughs> like it's fascinating to me because when you think about it, in Australia, we get four weeks of vacation a year and we take it, right? And sometimes in a row and that's okay. In the U.S., if they get four days off in a row, they think it's a vacation. To me, that's just a long weekend. So, you know, a very common thing here in the U.S. is time is money. It's a big mentality. Obviously, I live on the East Coast, so I'm surrounded by, you know, D.C., Philadelphia, and New York and Boston. So th this side of the U.S. also has its own uh, concept around time as opposed to when I'm speaking in the southern states or if I'm in the west. So even in this country, people's approach to time is different, Gihan. But the beautiful thing about being an Australian living in America is that I have the opportunity to bring some of the best principles of what we believe in being able to work hard and play hard. And that sense of equality we have in Australia. In the US, I think their core value is freedom, you know, freedom of speech, right to bear arms. Freedom is so important to them here. Whereas in Australia, I believe our core value is equality. We want to make sure everyone is treated equally and that's so important to us. So being able to bring that equality into an environment where freedom is such a key value for them, it also helps me because Americans are absolutely enamored with an Australian accent. So that is definitely in my favor. <laughs> but also, we have such a lovely approach to life. Australians around the world are perceived as some of the friendliest people on the planet. So people listen, and they're willing to take on board an international perspective in order for them to get more done. One of the things that we do have in common is that we just seem to be so busy, Neen. And I know there were some <laughs> predictions decades ago about how much we'd be struggling now because we'd have too much leisure time, and yet we seem to have less than ever before. <laughs> oh, so, so, so why is that? How come we're still so busy when we've got someone, such wonderful people as you telling us how we can fold time and get more things done, and yet we just seem to have more than ever before? We choose busy, Gihan. Hmm. We wear stress like a badge of honor. In this country, I see that all the time. People go to a dinner party, to a meeting, and they're like, oh, my God, I'm so stressed. I'm so busy. We wear this crazy pace like a badge of honor. So I think we choose busy, number one. 
But I also believe that technology has changed the pace at which we work. The global economy shifted. The local economy has shifted. People's roles have changed within the corporations or businesses that they run. Not only are people leaving the businesses, but they're not being replaced. And so what's happening is the expectations of people, from an expectation management point of view, the expectations have increased. If someone left the company, they didn't get replaced. The expectation was others would just step in and pick up the slack of that particular job. And I think it's not just the expectation management of corporations and business owners. It's the expectations of ourselves. We want more than we've wanted before. In the U.S. where I live, you know, people are saving and spending phenomenal amounts of money on their children's education. And, you know, they start saving for this when their children are born, basically, because it is so incredibly expensive. So the reason that we're so busy is we've, we choose busy. It's technology. It's changing roles. It's our expectation management. And we want more than we've ever wanted before. I think that's really insightful, Neen, because that's something that I've always thought about. Like, why, how come we're so busy given that we don't need to be? Like, we could all choose not to be busy, but it requires mm. a whole world to stop being busy, mm. doesn't it? it mm-hmm. It's hard for yeah. now in a smaller world for any one group or person or even country to say, okay, let's work a three-day week and have four <laughs> days a week holiday because uh, you'll be trampled. You'll be trampled by and everyone else. busy is contagious, Gihan. When people are busy around us, we have this sense that we need to be busy too. I notice it in the corporations I work in. And that's where when I came back to saying that we wear stress like a badge of honor, I think that busy is contagious. And yet some of the most powerful and influential people that we know, the leaders we aspire to be or we're attracted to, they slow down to speed up. They have a lovely elegance about them. They move with grace. They speak articulately. They slow down. And that's what we're attracted to in a, in a crazy world of busy. So that's really interesting. I got into this habit, Neen, of when people ask me how things at work, I'd say busy in a, in a positive way, a really good way. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, and I don't think that's necessarily the right thing to say. Just just because I was doing things effectively and there's work coming in and, and I was busy, but right. maybe busy wasn't the way to measure my success. Right. And I just think that it's a term that gets overused. It's not a productive language piece. But I think it's really cool to be able to say, I'm loving working with all the clients I am. I love that my calendar is at capacity. You know, there's different ways to say busy because busy is so misinterpreted. Yeah, great, great. And I know you've got these great techniques and principles around time management and productivity, Neen. And one of the things I love is that what you're talking about is so contemporary and relevant now. And it seems that time management has changed over the years. I remember the times when it was all about writing to-do lists and setting goals. And some of those things are still important. But Mm -hmm. then we seem to shift away from just that to things like work, uh, work-life balance and the mm-hmm. idea that you've got to have a, a life outside work as well. And then Tim Ferriss came out with a great book, The 4-Hour Workweek, which I loved. And I think it's been mm-hmm. misunderstood by many people, but I loved it, the idea that you, should, you shouldn't wait to retire at 65. You should start planning your retirement now and live, live the sort of things that you do right now. And there just seems to be this shift in moving away from to-do lists to be more of a, an integrated, holistic approach to time management and productivity. What's your take on that? I think time management's out the window. I think it's 80s thinking. These programs that were designed that people are still running, which, you know, breaks my heart. But, you know, making a to-do list, is that's important. I agree with you. Goal setting, absolutely important. We can take the best of some of that uh, time management principles that are out there. But now more than ever before, 
we demand more quality. We, it's not about quantity, it's about quality. Now, I believe, it's really about being able to be accountable for your time. It's not just about, you know, the old way of managing time. And so we have to be accountable for how we invest our time. We've got to be able to engage our attention differently now and give people the gift of our attention. And we've got to be able to leverage the energy we have on a daily basis. So I think it's more than time. It's about the time, the attention, and the energy that it takes. So when these books come out, some of them have some great ideas. And I love your takeaway of Tim's book. I love that he is an advocate for outsourcing your life and making sure you're working on the things that are incredibly important. I think people miss the point of his book. And I loved your takeaway from it. We've got to have fresh new thinking. If time is the new currency, which I believe it is, we need to understand how we're going to invest that currency differently than we ever have before. More people want access to it. We have to spend it on things. We have so many more choices now than we ever had before. Technology, as I said before, it's changed everything. So the world of time management and productivity has changed because the world has changed. It's shifted. Our access to information is so different now. It's greater than it ever was before. That's why these things have to change. So let me pick up on something you said there, Nene, because you talked about accountability and attention. I love that. I love those two concepts. People have always said everyone's got the same 24 hours in a day. It's just what you do with it. Mm -hmm. But I think what you've just hit on is here's how you figure out what you're going to do with those 24 hours. It's about your Mm -hmm. accountability and what you pay attention to. And the third thing I think you said was energy, right? So those Mm -hmm. are three things, accountability, attention, and energy. So tell Mm -hmm. me about accountability. So accountability to whom? there's a couple of things going on there we need to be accountable to ourselves if we go through the process of setting a goal we need to use those goals as filters for how we're going to invest our time so we've got to have a high level of accountability to ourselves people that are accountable are people of integrity people who do what they say they will do who keep their word that's the way to get ahead nowadays which means we have to honor the words to ourselves so we need to be accountable to ourselves number one But number two, we have people in our lives that we share our lives with that we also need to be accountable to. It fascinates me that when I ask a large audience in any conference I speak in, I always say to them, well, you don't have time to do everything. You only have time to do what matters. So what really matters to you? And number one answer is always family. It always comes up, Gihan. And yet what fascinates me, Gihan, is if I was to look at people's calendars and do an audit of how they've invested the last seven days, What I find is it's often the families or people we share our lives with that get the leftovers. We work these amazing jobs, these hours we put in in order to provide a lifestyle for people that we care so deeply about and yet those people get the leftovers and yet we claim they matter. So how we invest our attention and being accountable for that, we also need to be accountable to the people we share our lives with. We need to schedule time for them just like we would for a client. We need to keep our word and our promises to our friends, our girlfriends, our partners, the people in our lives are important. So accountability is not just to ourselves. It's also to our wider community as well. And that also just then spills over into that whole idea of energy, doesn't it? And there's so many people who say they're going to make time for their family, but by the time they get around mm. to doing that, they've got no energy to do that. Right. Because they put all the energy into other things, which which they would say matter less. But in the heat of the moment, it seems like they're the things that they, that they focus on and they put their attention on. 
Exactly. And like I said, time is a really great indicator. It is a currency. And if I looked at people's calendars, it tells me instantly what matters to them. Now, many people might argue, Bihan, that they're working as hard as they are to be able to create a lifestyle for these people that do matter. And I understand intentionally that is what they want to do. Contextually, that makes sense. But what happens is those people that are around them want nothing more than the gift of their undivided attention. And they want their attention and they want them to have the energy to hold a conversation with them and make them more important. What I see often happens is if you ever go to a restaurant, you see this couple on a really hot date and both of them are on their cell phones. <laughs> I mean, it, it's fascinating to me, right? So what's happened is we've made technology more important than people. We're spending our energy, our focus, our attention on technology and instead of the gorgeous person who might be sitting or standing in front of us. Oh, yes. So, so you've been out to dinner with me, haven't you, Neen? <laughs> Isn't it fascinating, though? Like, our, our cell phones have become the lifeblood. I mean, no matter who I talk to, if they leave their cell phone at home, they feel like their left hand has been cut off. And <laughs> there was a time, you know, before cell phones, you know, you and I are old enough to remember that. There, there was actually a time. So when it comes to really being accountable for time, not just for ourselves but for other people, the way we engage our attention and leverage our energy, I think the way we engage our attention also builds our energy. If you get to hang out with people that you really enjoy being with, people you love and adore, they top up your energy. They're what I call VIPs. They're very inspiring people. These are people that make you feel great, that make you want to make time with them. We make time for the people who matter to us, and so we need to schedule time so we can build that energy to be able to serve people in the way we need to. What you're talking about, Neen, is related to something which I've always been intrigued by, and it's the concept of work-life balance. And mm. I know it's been bandied around a lot, and I know you and I both have thoughts about it. And my, my feeling is that there, that there just seem to be two fundamental flaws with it. So first of all, it implies that work and life are separate. And mm. now more than ever, that's not the case. Like you want meaningful right. work and you want to you want work to be part of your life. But also the idea that you've got to switch between work and life. And whether it's 50-50 or 80-20 or whatever, the idea that you can go to work, then at 5 p.m., close the door, go home, <laughs> and then start your life, and then go back mm -hmm. in at 9 o'clock the next morning. And that just doesn't happen anymore. And, right. and I love your idea of work-life integration, or what I, what I like to call flow, where you just have to have what's happening at work, what's happening in your personal life, and it just flows through the 24 hours of your day. And what, mm. what's your take on that? How do you see that as being different from work-life balance? You know, I think you've really, you've nailed this when you talk about in your Channeling Chaos keynote, you've got some beautiful language around, you know, the directions and the signals and uh, collaboration, but I loved what you were saying about flow. I think that's a really elegant way to put it. To me, when I heard the term work-life balance, Gihan, I envisaged a set of scales and that they had to be equal, that work and play needed to be equal. And I don't believe that that's the case. And I also don't believe anyone has the right to tell you what you should or shouldn't do as far as work-life balance. What I believe, like you, is the same person turns up to work that goes home at nighttime. And so for me, it was about work-life integration. I think that that's three things. I think that work-life integration is about the environment that we create and managing our environment. I think it's like a triangle, not a set of scales. If at the bottom the foundation was environment, another thing we need to consider is the emotions, not just the emotions of ourselves, but the emotions of other people. We have this crazy, unproductive emotion around guilt. And, you know, we feel guilty if we're at work because we want to 
invest money to provide a lifestyle for people we care about. And then we feel guilty when we're at home caring and looking after those people because we think there's some emails that we need to be checking. And so it's about managing the emotion. And the third side of the triangle, Gihan, is around expectations. What are our expectations of ourselves? What are expectations of other people? I think work-life balance is a myth, but integration leaves a legacy. And I think it's a big difference between those two. Right. Okay, so I'm getting that. So just while you were talking, I was drawing the triangle, Neen, with the environment, emotions and expectations. And, and I love that idea because whenever I look at something with a triangle, I think, okay, let's take out one of those. So if, if you don't have the right environment, then it doesn't matter what expectations you have and what emotions mm-hmm. you invest in it. It's not going to work because your, your life's going to be a mess. And similarly, right. if you've got the wrong expectations, but you've got the right environment and the right emotions, then mm-hmm. you can still get frustrated because you're tr- you're trying to achieve something that you can never achieve. Right, that's exactly right. And I think where people are in their journey will determine their level of work-life integration. So if you are new in your career, working your way through a corporate ladder, working crazy hours and doing everything you can to get high-profile, extra projects, more responsibility, you're going to feel like you're leaning a lot towards work and you need to manage the expectations of people you share lives with and say, hey, I'm new in my career, I want to put in the hours and that's what I want to do. Or it could be that you're studying your MBA and you need to reach out to your goal friends or your family and say, hey, I'm not going to be around socially as much as I want to be, but still stay in touch with me. I want to know how you're doing. It's just this is where my focus is right now. Or it could be that you're at the other end of your career and you do have more time and you have the opportunity to mentor and and coach and create environments for other people that are more successful, but maybe some of your friends don't have that same time. So it's really about making sure that all three sides of the triangle are being touched when it comes to work-life integration. I love that model, Neen. I love it because it, it actually gives you practical ways to put this idea into practice, isn't it? So you can say, I, mm-hmm. want, to, I want to have more work-life integration, but you look at those three things and go, okay, what are, these, what are the expectations I need to set? How's, mm-hmm. What environment do I need to create? And what right. emotions do I need to manage? Yeah. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. So this is why I love talking to you, Neen. I always come across, <laughs> come across some great insights. Same, same, my friend. I'm sure it's a mutual admiration club. So just before we finish off, Neen, let's look at the future. I saw that Wired Magazine's Kevin Kelly predicted a few years ago that by the end of the century, 70% of our everyday jobs will be completely carried out by robots. And, <laughs> and we're going to have a lot more leisure time. And I've seen those sort of predictions, which have they've been around since before I was born, that we're going to have more leisure time. And sometimes I mean, I'm sure there's some truth to it. And I'm sure that we do have more opportunities to, to have moments of happiness now than we've ever had. But what are your predictions for productivity and performance in the future? You know, it's funny you should say that. I remember when PCs were invented, they were supposed to give us more vacation time. Yes. <laughs> Email was created as an internal messaging system. And look what that has actually done. Yeah. <laughs> as I said earlier, time is the new currency. We are going to have to continue to do more with less. People are now working while we sleep. So what's happened is the um, the traditional hours have moved and we've become not only a 24-hour business, no matter what business we're in, but there is people available to do the work 24 hours a day. So when it comes to productivity and performance in the future, what I, what I believe great leaders are going to need to do is they're going to need to slow down to speed up. They're going to need to slow down and focus on the things that are the most important to them and not be distracted by everything else that will allow them to have that competitive advantage and to accelerate the results. 
we need to stop and be more accountable for our time and focus our attention on the things that are going to give us the greatest results. So uh, the image of robots cleaning my house, that totally works for me. We even have, there's even robots now that can vacuum your floors for you. So from that point of view, I can see how systems could be automated, but people can't. And so people are always going to need to be in relationship with you. And at the end of the day, it's people that are going to get things done. So we need to invest in those relationships. And we need to also get smarter about the way that we leverage those people and their relationships. We can leverage technology to do some of that, Gihan. But I think the future is still going to be about people. Nina, I'm sure lots of people would like to talk to you and find out how they can work with you and what sort of work you can do with them. So who do you like to work with and how do people get in touch with you? I love working with leaders, whether it's leaders within corporations or leaders who have their own practice who want to get more done so they can create more significant moments in life that matter. That's what I love. That's what energizes me. My website is going to be the easiest way to connect, and that is just my name, Neen James, N-E-E-N-J-A-M-E-S.com. You can drop me an email. You can follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Neen James. You can come across to Facebook and like us on the Neen James Communications uh, page there. There are so many different ways we can connect. I'd be delighted to help any of the listeners who want to reach out and say g'day. And I think you should buy the book, Folding Time. It's a fantastic book. I've read it twice now, and it's an easy read, which I think means it's well-written, and it's got such practical ideas, but also big-picture strategies as well. Thank you, Gihan. I'm so glad you like it. It's also designed as a book for people who don't have time to read. There's a sneaky way to read this. In each chapter, there is a page called Accelerate. It gives you all the bullet points for the rest of that chapter. If you want to read this book even more productively, just read the pages called Accelerate, and you'll have the gist of the whole book. Whenever we talk, we have a great time and we have great conversations, but I always come away learning something new. And and that's certainly true today. I've got some great insights, some great wisdom, as usual, and in having a conversation with you. So thank you so much for sharing that, sharing your time, but particularly for your wisdom and insights. Oh, it's been my absolute privilege, Gihan. Anytime I get to learn from you or spend time with you, you are still to this day one of the most amazing thought leaders and you've always had such an elegance around your language and your models, which I've always admired. So thank you for allowing me to be part of this. It's been a privilege. Oh, you're welcome and thank you too. I hope you enjoyed that. That's just a short extract of a longer conversation that I had with Neen, and that's available in CD and MP3 format, and you can find it at gihanperera.com. In the resources area, look under audio programs. I highly recommend it. As you can see, Neen's a true thought leader in this area. Now let's shift focus. Let's look at some trends in technology, society, and the economy are affecting out-of-office work. In other words, people working from a home office or from internet cafes, any non-traditional office workplace. In most cases, this sort of work is now much easier than ever before. And that's good news for us, whether you're an employer, you're an employee, you're a business owner, you're an entrepreneur. So my friend Chris Padney, who's also the co-author of the book, Out of Office, and I recently discussed this topic. So let's join the conversation now. So I think let's start with uh, the whole idea of the out-of-office work style in general, Chris. Telecommuting is definitely on the rise. I guess it's a trend that's happened, that's accelerated for a couple of reasons recently, uh, partly because of the economic downturn around the world. It meant that people want to cut expenses. Uh, so they're doing things like off-site meetings. People are working from home so they can save money. Uh, there are ex- expenses that are saved through 
you know, office infrastructures, um, but also technology has made it more possible and feasible for people to work out of office. And uh, this is happening all around the world. But there's some, I saw some predictions that by 2016, four out of 10 US professionals will be doing some sort of out of office work. And here in Australia as well, it's a growing option for at least internet savvy businesses. The Australian Bureau of Statistics is predicting that, uh, well, even at the moment, more than a third of micro businesses are using the internet to enable staff to work from home. And for larger businesses, the number's even bigger. Yeah, the other statistic that you dug out was the growth in uh, telecommuting in the US, it's grown 80% almost since 2005. And that's at the same time as there's been a decline in the overall US workforce. So the the workforce itself declined by 2%, but the number of people telecommuting regularly grew by 80% in that seven year period, which I think is is a phenomenal trend. Yeah, I agree with you, Chris. Yeah, and uh, the other statistic that you mentioned briefly was that for larger business, three quarters of them in Australia have the facility to support that kind of thing. And that's encouraging the technology is making it possible and businesses are are making use of that. Yeah, exactly. In fact, that was probably the biggest number, wasn't it? Three quarters. Mm. So if you're one of the remaining 25% or lower, you're lagging behind. All right. Shall we move on uh, to uh, some more specific ski hunts? So let's actually look at uh, the office, the workplace. So uh, depending on what kind of -of out-of-office worker you are, your office might actually be a regular office. If you're a semi-commuter, you might be spending part of your time at a regular office and part of your time, say, working from home. Or if you're like me, you might be an e-worker who spends uh, most or if not all of their time working remotely. Or you could be a digital nomad like Yugi Han who travels a lot as part of their work style and so works on the road and works from um, uh, clients' offices and also works from their own home office. So for the people who do work from a fixed office, even if that's a home office, so people like you, Chris, here in Australia, of course, we've got the National Broadband Network. And that's been a bit, a bit, a bit of a political hot potato recently. So we don't exactly know where it's, where it's up to, but it's, it's going to go ahead in some form or another. And uh, it seems to have slowed down a little bit. And I don't know whether Malcolm Turnbull is kind of preparing us for more bad news, but there's some warnings. <laughs> there's definitely some warnings about a slowdown of the, of the rollout. But certainly the National Broadband Network, the NBN, is going to be something that's going to facilitate out-of-office work. As you say... Um when we get it, uh, it will improve the uh, infrastructure for access to the internet uh, in Australia, at least. Switching over to uh, wireless connection gear, Hans. So recently, in our, again, st- focusing not just on Australia, but focusing on Perth, uh, the, in the central CBD, they've rolled out one of these new municipal wi- free wireless plans. So they've got a Wi-Fi network that covers much of the central business district in Perth. So you can hook into uh, that wireless network for free and get access to the internet. Yeah, that's right. And, and that is the way it's been set up is mostly for casual users rather than people who are going to sit themselves in a park for the whole day and do their their daily work. However, if you want to be, like if you want to be a digital nomad and you want to spend some time in a cafe somewhere or in a park within the city of Perth, you can do that now. That certainly helps us as digital nomads. Yeah, and as you say, it's the first in Australia, but there are many more cities around the world that are taking these kinds of initiatives. And so digital nomads uh, around the world will have access to these kinds of uh, these kinds of free municipal services. Uh, if you don't have that, then you have to rely on things like um, mobile broadband and uh, and that can be expensive uh, if you're on the road. You've got to, you'll have a particular plan, and it's easy. I find not just with my mobile, but also with my home plan to go over my quota. 
Yeah, look, I, I think the telcos are certainly becoming more aware of that, and they are providing more generous data plans. Uh, like mine is, I think, three gigabytes a month, which is sufficient for me as a digital nomad to be able to use my data plan when I'm out on the road, because that's not my whole download, of course. When I'm in my home office, that's when I'll be doing most of my work. The The real catch is when you go over when you go over, you get charged per megabyte, and that can be very expensive. And uh, I'm noticing now some telcos, uh, Optus in particular, and there's a Live Connected, which is one of the mobile providers that uses Optus, introduced a sliding plan. And I heard somebody say that's even available here. And initially, it was only in Sydney, Chris, but I heard here that Optus is doing that now as well. I'm not sure about that. I haven't found anything to verify that. But the idea is that you sign up to a plan, and if you go, if you spend more than that plan, they will automatically push you up into the next plan for that month. They give you the best of both worlds. So if you only go mm. by a tiny amount, then they'll charge you the tiny uh, overcharge fee. But if you go over by more than the extra $10 that it would cost you to go to the next plan up, they'll push you up into the next plan just for that month. And then at the end of the month, you go back into your lower plan. So it seems like they're being very customer friendly that way. And that is a, that's a very positive step. Yeah. Yeah, so that avoids those exorbitant per megabyte fees. Whereas I have a pay-as-you-go plan, so I pay for those exorbitant per megabyte fees up front. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so the other office trend that's worth mentioning, Gihan, and that is uh, bring your own device, BYOD, or as our friend in banking calls it, bring your own disaster. And this is uh, a trend that um, Gartner chose as their number one, uh, their number one trend in their annual um, report on technology trends. And uh, a statistic that buoys that is that in Australia, we love uh, tablets. So 7 million people use a tablet. So that's that's a third of the population who are regular users of tablet devices. And we don't just want to use them at home. We want to use them at work. So we want to bring them into work and we want to use them as out-of-office workers as well. The flip side of that is uh, the headache that BYOD can cause for IT departments. They're typically very conservative. They want to lock things down and control devices. So BYOD has been a bit of a a management uh, challenge for IT departments, but it is nevertheless a growing trend and one that they need to accommodate. So let's move on to the actual workflow. So we talked about the office itself, but within within your office, which might be a home office or somewhere uh, outside a traditional office, how do you manage things? And uh, the big thing, of course, and we've talked about this as the the biggest facilitator for the out-of-office workshop, Chris, is, of course, the cloud. The fact that you can now store your data, your applications, everything that you need is available in the uh, on the internet, which means that you don't need to copy files across to your individual devices. And this this comes into two areas. There's a personal cloud and the shared cloud. So personal cloud is the idea that you've got your information available to you from multiple devices, from your computer, your tablet, your phone, all your private information is available. And the Apple devices are particularly good at this. Uh, and in fact, they're particularly designed for that. So you can have your your music collection available from your phone, uh, from your iPhone, your iPad, and your Mac. Uh, but they're not so good at the shared data, having data in a shared cloud, whereas the Google uh, infrastructure is set up very much for that. They facilitate sharing much better. Uh, so things like Google Drive, which we use to share documents when we're working on a podcast episode together, Chris, uh, it's in your private Google Drive, but you've got the ability to share that with me. And both of those things are very important uh, for out-of-office workers. The personal cloud more so so that you can be mobile, and that, I guess, this applies more to semi-commuters and digital nomads. But the shared cloud uh, applies to all out-of-office workers because it means that 
we've all got access to documents, to software, to applications from wherever we are, which means that we don't need to go into the office anymore to get access to the files that we need. That's right, Gihan. One of the central principles that we have in our book is that, I think it's, to quote it, it's as much as is practical, use the cloud for collaboration. Um, And it's that as much as is practical that we included there, things like Google Docs, as they were called in those days, the, the word processing software that Google provided in the cloud wasn't quite as as good as, uh, well, it wasn't as good as, say, Microsoft Office, the desktop productivity suite. But I've really seen a significant improvement in things like Google Docs. So the word processing software is much better so that as much as is practical, I think, is actually reducing. It's becoming much more practical to use the cloud. It's, it's even becoming preferable. It's still not as Google Google's document, it's, it's, it's word processing software is still not as good as uh, Microsoft Office, but Microsoft Office now has a cloud offering as well. I think it's called Office 365, where you still use the desktop software, but all the documents themselves are in Microsoft's cloud, whatever that's called. So we're moving to this stage where using the cloud is not just practical, it's it's preferable. Exactly. And I think the other thing related to that, Chris, is not just that the applications have got better, but it's just that we're now, as we said earlier, we're now much more mobile and much more willing to and uh, willing and capable of accessing the cloud from anywhere that we are. Yeah, yeah. So another part of information workers' uh, work style is attending meetings, and that's particularly important for out-of-office workers. So we need to maintain contact with our colleagues and clients, and so we're regularly meeting. A trend that we've observed, Gihan, is uh, a growth in video conferencing. So we're not just talking about sales of video conferencing hardware and software, but we're talking about people actually doing things like just pulling out their phone and making a video phone call or just informally setting up a Google Hangout, which they can do with the equipment that they've already got. So I have noticed this is significantly better than it was even a year or 18 months ago. And there are companies like Citrix, and maybe I'm a bit biased because Citrix is a client of mine, so maybe I'm seeing their bias on it, but they're really pushing the idea that video is realistic and viable alternative now to actually meeting in person. Um, but yeah, there's certainly the quality of the, the video conferences that I'm involved in are much higher and the, they're actually much more reliable. So there are far fewer technical glitches, uh, which, which used to really plague most online meetings, uh, both audio and video. You still get the occasional problem with, with people's video but it really is something that's it's feasible and, uh, and to use the word earlier, Chris, uh, sometimes it's preferable. There, there, there is still, I think, a mindset that's um, holding video conferencing back. And I think, Kihan, you've talked about the adoption of um, technologies as going through four phases where it's impractical, then it becomes feasible, then it becomes uh, was it attractive and then preferable. And I think a lot of people are still stuck in that mindset where it was at one stage impractical, the technology didn't work well, it was expensive to get it working well. But now we're, we're at that stage where the reality is that video conferencing is um, attractive, if not preferable. Yeah, exactly. And I think that if you have tried video conferencing before and find it difficult, you may actually be at a disadvantage and you're better off thinking just forget about everything I ever knew about video conferencing. Let's let's start afresh and see what's available now because you might find it's significantly different than what you might have experienced in the past. Yeah. Um, so that's talking about actual meetings where you're, you're talking about virtual meetings. But of course, sometimes you do need to meet in person. 
uh, off-site meetings are something that out-of-office workers sometimes do get involved with. Even the people who are full-time telecommuters like you, Chris, you do occasionally go to meetings, events, and conferences. That's right, yep. And I think uh, they're an important part of the out-of-office work style because um, research shows that it, there are about a third of out-of-office workers who do suffer a bit with the isolation that comes with an out-of-office work style. So if they get to attend occasional out- off-site meetings where they get to meet face-to-face or belly-to-belly with real people, they're, they're, they're not a virtual presence or a virtual team member, then that helps those people um, uh, work more effectively and feel more integrated with the people that they work with. I think what we've found is in the past few years, uh, let's say three or four years ago, because of the global financial crisis and the economic downturn, there was a significant drop in off-site meetings. And we're not just talking about you know, going into the office for a meeting. Um, I'm talking about business meetings, conferences, events, associations getting together uh, for their annual conference and uh, having monthly chapter meetings. There was a significant drop-off. And it was due to the expense and uh, people, uh, organizations, rightly or wrongly, would see that this was an expense that they could cut. Uh, I know the meetings industry had quite a downturn and it seems that that's picking up now in in the Asia Pacific area. I saw some one stat, which again, I think is a little bit biased because it's from the Asia Pacific Incentives and Meetings Expo, where they were pretty optimistic and pretty bullish about the growth of business meetings next year. Uh, although they didn't actually quote, I, I looked around, I couldn't see any research that they specifically quoted. They were just making general comments saying, um, Asia Pacific is growing. There are this many meetings in Sydney. This many meetings in the in the Asian region, and we need to be uh, be aware that it's going to grow and going to be even bigger in 2014. Uh, but I think uh, I did find some research on a, on a more global scale, which suggested that yeah, there there are some there is a growth, but it's moderate growth. And this is from the uh, CWT report about the meetings industry and was looking at specifically uh, 2014. There are some trends that are happening with these off-site meetings uh, that, again, coming out of this CWT report, they're saying that the off-site meetings are closer to home. So people are having more um, like domestic rather than international meetings um, and, and regional rather than national meetings. Um, and that's because they want to keep the cost down. Uh, there's, there seems to be a trend that organizations are holding more meetings, but they're smaller meetings. And they're really focused on the ROI and not just on having a you know, great networking event where people get together and celebrate and have fun, but it really has to have real commercial value as well. And they also recommended that organizers focus on the attendee experience. So quality, as you'd expect, should be uh, one of the major drivers for organizing these meetings. Yeah, look, and I think it's just uh, the, the greater demand and the great expectation that if you go somewhere, you're going to get real value from it. It doesn't mean that you can't have fun, and it doesn't mean that there can't be social things uh, organized around those meetings. And I know you found, Chris, when you've attended your work conferences or even just going to the office, you have interactions which facilitate the work that you do with people later, even though there may be social interactions. And I think people expect that, and that's one of the benefits of off-site meetings. For sure. Yep. And in fact, off-site meetings are part of what we're going to talk about next, and that is professional development. So I think uh, Stephen Covey's uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, his, was it his seventh habit, Gihan, that is sharpen the saw? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So uh, that's professional development. And one of the trends that we've observed for out-of-office workers is that of MOOCs, massive open online courses. And we've both uh, participated in MOOCs there. I did one on data analysis in March, and you've done three or four, I think, Gihan. Yes, although mine weren't as massive as yours. <laughs> 
you had the diligence and the discipline to actually complete that course, and it was quite significant, wasn't it? But it was it was worthwhile. It sure was. It certainly was. And um, yeah, the M stands for massive, and the, the, there were tens of thousands of enrollees. But as I'll say later, the dropout rate is quite high. But it is a it's it's a growing trend, and it fits really well with um, the out of office work style. So the kinds of MOOCs offer the same sorts of flexibility in terms of when and where you engage with the coursework, uh, and, and that meshes really well with the flexibility that the out of office work style affords. So I think they're a good fit for out of office workers. And it's a growing trend. So the supply is growing. So a, a survey I saw um, that interviewed higher education institutions, 56% of them either already offer MOOCs or are planning to do so within the next three years. And that uh, about 84% of them would consider teaming up with one of the established providers such as Udacity or edX or Coursera. You, you know that it's becoming mainstream when you actually are getting the higher education institutions saying yes we're willing to jump on board because we realize that this is actually a viable alternative and the one that i used was one called open to study which mm-hmm. uh, they had a number of courses and they were they were they were about four week courses and they were on small topics but important topics so i did one on food and nutrition which is one that i was really interested in i didn't i didn't have a lot, lot of knowledge about so i thought this would be useful to immerse myself in the content did one on big data which was one that i was really interested in learning the content i knew something about it i did one on financial literacy which was something one where i, I pretty much knew the content it was basic stuff like budgeting and what do you do if you inherit five hundred dollars do you, you know, go on a holiday or put it towards your um, put it towards your credit card overdraft. Buy a birthday present for yes. a friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and but these these courses did have some academic um, institutions. I think Macquarie University was running one of the courses. So even though they weren't as big and as rigorous as some of the other MOOCs, there was certainly still high quality education. Yeah, yeah. There's different offerings, Gihan. So some of them you can actually get course credit. Some of them are really just there for your own edification. You don't get any any qualification at the end of it other than what you've learned, and, and that's valuable too. So that's the, the supply side. On the demand side, um, Coursera, which has only been around for, is it two or three years? They've already attracted 5 million enrollees. And edX, which I think have been around for even less time, they've already had... 1.3 million people enroll in their courses. So that's a huge number of people who've, who've enrolled in these courses. However, 90% of people drop out. So I was one of the 10% who completed the Coursera course that I did on data analysis. A lot of people focus on this high dropout rate and, and say that that reflects perhaps on the quality. But I think because there's such a low barrier to entry, a lot of people are just diving into MOOCs to get a feel for them. And in fact, that was one of the motivations for me enrolling in the Coursera course. I just want to find out how they worked. Um, and they're not necessarily, you know, because there's a low barrier to entry, it's, they haven't invested much. And so they, they're inclined to drop out as well. So I don't think the high dropout rate is necessarily uh, a negative thing. I agree with you, Chris, and I was one of the 90% because I enrolled in a Coursera course about climate change because, again, that's a topic I'm interested in. But I found that the amount of work that was involved for me to do it properly and to do it at a level I would be happy with was too much at the time. And so I I dropped out of that. Uh, And I completely agree with you. I think that a lot of people join because it's easy to join. And uh, I was one of those people. I was also interested in the technology, of course, behind it. But mm. I was also going, okay, well, if this is only going to take me a couple of hours a week, then I'm 
then I'm happy to do that. Uh, and I think the dropout rate is more relevant for organizations without office workers rather than the workers themselves. So if, if you're a motivated and disciplined person and you want to learn something and you realize this is part of your professional development and as an out-of-office worker, you may miss out on some of the, say, in-house training that your, your colleagues are getting, then you're motivated enough to do the course. But I think as an organization, if you've got out-of-office workers and you're thinking of how you're going to give them professional development, don't automatically assume that just because these MOOCs are available and they're free and they're supported by higher education institutions that you can just tell people, do this MOOC in your spare time and that that will do, that you can tick off the professional development box. I don't think that's reasonable. You just have to understand, you have to understand that just like your in-office workers who are going to go to training courses and spend spend time away from work doing that and then have follow-up mentoring to make sure that that is that learning is embedded in the workplace you have to assume that your out-of-office workers are also going to need that level of support and and time and resources available yeah okay and i think when that is uh, this bears out as another statistic i saw so a survey of higher education leaders three quarters of them rated their learning outcomes as equal to or superior to face-to-face learning. So I didn't dive into the report to, to get uh, the nitty-gritty of that, but that was a, a really interesting, um, an interesting statistic. And um, I certainly was, I found the course that I completed because I was motivated. I really wanted to learn this stuff, uh, data analysis. Uh, I, I certainly rated what I learned from that course as being of, of high quality. So that's one data point yeah and that's and that's good though chris i'm I'm not surprised that the number's so high because the technology and the the way the course is set up is is very very good now most of the things that were available to you in an in-person course were available in the online version as well like having tutorials having forums where people could ask questions in fact some of them were done better than you than you would get in an in-person course that's right Okay, Gihan, so that's it. That's our trends for 2014. And um, we'll be keeping an eye on these and other technologies that support out-of-office work. Do you want to work from virtually anywhere? The internet makes it possible, and the book Out of Office shows you how. Get your copy at outofofficebook.com and get more convenience, comfort, and freedom in your work life. Now I want to talk about membership sites. In the last 18 months or so, I've noticed that many, many people are talking to me about creating paid membership sites. And I reckon if you've got an experienced and an established business, a paid membership site can be a pretty good next step for your business. But I've also noticed a number of common mistakes that many people make when planning and building their membership site. So if you can understand and avoid these mistakes, it really increases your chances of building a powerful asset for your business. That's what a membership site can be. Gives you recurring income and can be a great long-term asset for your business. So I'm going to share with you the seven biggest mistakes that business owners make with the paid membership site. Now I should start off by saying that the most common questions I hear are about tactics, such as what software should you use, what payment system should you use, how can you integrate it with your main website, and so on. But really, the most common mistakes are about the strategy, as you're going to see from this list. So mistake number one, starting too soon. So it's true that membership sites are pretty hot at the moment, and you want to jump on the bandwagon, and you want to take advantage of it. But they do take a lot of work to create, to sell to members, and to maintain. So before you decide to commit to a membership site, be sure that you have these three things in place. 
The first one is value. In other words, you've got a track record of providing real value that people are willing to pay for to customers and clients. Because if you know you've got that, then you can provide that same sort of value to your members in your membership site. The second thing is resources. So this is the ability to deliver ongoing products and services for your members. And if you've already created those sort of products like ebooks and downloadable MP3 files and videos, so much the better. But if you haven't, you've got to be able to create those sort of products or deliver some sort of services like webinars and email access to you and phone consulting, those sort of things to your members. And the third thing is a network. And that's not just a database of potential customers, although that is important, but it's also access to other experts who you can bring in as guests for your members or staff that you can delegate work to over time to manage the site. So you've got to have those three things, value, resources, and a network. Okay, mistake number two is overestimating the value of your membership site. Now, this is a common mistake because when you stack up the value of everything in your membership site, it's pretty easy to convince yourself that you're going to give them huge value. After all, you might be offering them 100 ebooks, three webinars a month, and unlimited access to you by email for just $47. And yeah, that is good value if you're comparing that to paying for everything separately, but nobody else is thinking that way. What they're doing is they're weighing up what else could they do with that money, and that's your real competition. There's another problem. Even those who understand the value are wondering how are they going to put it into action. See, if you think about it, they already know that they don't get full value from their gym membership or their cable TV subscription. So why should your membership site be any different? The fact is, it's not. It's not. Unless you can prove to them that they're really going to get the results that they seek. So first of all, you've got to give them the value. And second, you've got to give them a clear path to action. So mistake number three is selling to strangers. And you know that if you've ever tried to sell anything online, you know just how difficult it is to convince people to buy, even to pay a dollar for something. It's not that people are scared to buy online anymore, at least. It's just that you don't know how to market to strangers who stumble across your website. Most website owners have no idea, unless you've done it before. So if you think about how difficult that is, then multiply that by 100 times when you're thinking about asking them to buy an ongoing subscription. So they're going, you want permission to charge my credit card every month for the rest of my life? No way. Now, if you're already good at internet marketing and selling online, this doesn't apply to you. But if you're not, the easiest way to solve this problem is not to target strangers in the first place. So offer your membership site to past clients or bundle it in with other offerings or to everybody who buys your book or whatever. In other words, sell it to people who already know, like and trust you. It's far easier to sell it first to those sort of people than to try and convince strangers who stumble across your website to buy and pay for an ongoing subscription to your membership site. So mistake number four is what I call running on empty. It's really difficult to run a membership site with only a few members. See, what happens is this, you only have a few people who attend your webinars, hardly anybody contributes to the online forum, you never get any positive feedback, and a whole bunch of things are very difficult to do when you've only got a small number of members. And of course, on top of all of that, you have to keep doing a lot of work in exchange for very little income, because not many people are paying you. So, the solution is to do whatever it takes to build the membership fast, even if you don't get a lot of money from it. 
So you could give a discount to what you call foundation members, or you could give it away to your 10 best clients, or you could offer it free with every workshop, or you could give three months access to people who buy your book, whatever, whatever. Just think of some ways to get members on board. It's better to have some members, even if they aren't all full paying members. These first members are the sort of people you need to get started. They're the ones who are going to get the ball rolling. They're going to participate in your webinars. They're going to road test the site for you. They're going to give you positive feedback and constructive criticism. And they're going to give the site momentum. And after that, you start building up. Mistake number five is to expect a lot of interaction. So don't expect your members, even the first ones, to interact a lot on the site, especially interacting with each other. They might interact with you, but they're probably not going to participate a lot in the online forums or like each other's comments or share things with each other. If they do interact, that's a bonus, but don't expect it. It does take a lot of work to get people involved in any online community, unless they're really, really, really passionate about it. And let's face it, most of your members are not really passionate about your community. Might be passionate about something else, but they're probably not passionate about your community. So rather than spending a lot of time trying to build this interaction and participation, the magic word is engagement. So rather than doing that, focus on giving them high quality resources and giving them access to you. That's probably why they joined anyway. Mistake number six is to underestimate the amount of time and effort involved in administration. So you can get membership site software to do most of the heavy lifting for you. Things like taking money, creating new users, resetting forgotten passwords, even scheduling releases of modules at various times and dates. But you might be surprised and a bit frustrated at just how much you still need to do. Members are going to be asking questions like the time zones for your webinars or special payment terms for their situation or forgotten passwords even if you have a mechanism for them to retrieve it or tech support questions for problems that are outside your control. That's just human nature. They're not dumb, they're just busy. So just allow time to handle these sort of problems. Eventually you'll be able to delegate this to somebody else but when you're starting out it's a good idea to start by handing it all yourself so you get a good feeling for what your members need. And mistake number seven, the last one, is waiting too long to get started. Now, that sounds like a bit of a contradiction, because I know that number one was saying that many people start too soon. But it's not really a contradiction. So it is true that many people jump in too soon with the membership site, but many wait too long as well. So if you can overcome those problems that are talked about, a membership site can be a really profitable and enjoyable part of your business. It provides really steady cash flow for you, you get loyal clients, you build a growing asset, and you have a powerful way to keep in touch with, with really what your, what your market needs because your best customers and clients are probably going to be your members. So understand and avoid the mistakes that I've talked about, but when you're confident that you can make a membership site work, don't wait forever. So I hope you found that useful, the seven mistakes that people commonly make with membership sites. If you'd like to know more about building your own membership site, I'm running a two-day workshop in Sydney in early April, just before Easter. So the idea is that you actually build your own membership site in the two days. So you don't just learn how to do it, you actually do build it. So at the end of the two days, you'll be ready to walk out with a complete membership site, ready to start taking your first members. If you'd like to know more about this workshop, go to gihanperera.com and you'll see it on the top right-hand side of the homepage. So that's it for Expert Gold Radio this month. I hope you enjoyed it and found something valuable for your personal or professional life. 
And by the way, this radio show is not the only way that you can engage with me. There are plenty of other ways as well. Let me give you a couple of examples. So first, go to gihanperero.com and subscribe to my email newsletter, which is also called Expert Gold. And while you're there, read and subscribe to my blog as well. You'll see it there with the blog button. Also, sign up to my free webinar series. I run two webinars a month, and they're half-hour webinars, very focused on specific topics to help you with your personal and professional life. In fact, the next few, I'm going to have some about membership sites. Also, go to my YouTube channel, my video channel, at gihanperera.tv, and watch my regular educational videos. You should also join my membership site, the eGurus community. This is specifically for experts and other people who make money by selling their expertise in some way. And you can find out more at egurus.info. That's E-G-U-R-U-S dot info. Now, if you need a speaker for your next conference, you can engage me as a speaker, and you can find out more at gihanspeaks.com. So I wish you all the best for 2014. I'll be back next month. This is Gihan Pereira. Bye for now. You've been listening to Expert Gold Radio. If you'd like to subscribe, read the show notes, or leave your comments, visit expertgoldradio.com. And remember, great minds don't think alike.